Good morning. How wonderful to be together with all of you. One thing we have not yet done as we proceed through All Saints and All Souls is actually read the litany together. So you should have received copies of the litany, which we're going to read. Um, just a couple of uh, words by introduction. Uh, the All Saints litany is a structure for our catechesis this year. And we use this every year. Uh, is this correct, Jennifer Martin? Um, at our All Souls, All Saints services on uh, our All, All Hallows Day and All Souls on November 1st and 2nd, at which time we also celebrate the patronal festival or feast of the church. I love festivals and feasts. Um, All Saints Day, we have the opportunity to give thanks to the Lord for all of those who have gone on to him, have gone on before us to intercede on our behalf and the benefit we receive from the communion of saints. Um, but we also have All Souls Day, and certainly if, we can, if the saints can intercede on our behalf, we can intercede together for one another. So all saints and all souls come together uh, at that festival. Um, so with that in mind, um, as we consider the saints, how they intercede for us, and as we intercede for one another, let's read this litany together. And please try to ignore that for the time being <laughs> on the screen and focus on this. Um, I will read the light print if we can all read in unison response. Uh, the thanks be to God. For Abraham and Sarah, our ancestors in faith and all who journey into the unknown, trusting God's promises. For Jacob, deceitful younger brother, yet chosen by God the father of all who are called by virtue not of their own. For Moses the lawgiver and Aaron the priest and all who lead God's people to freedom and newness of life. Thanks be to God. For Esther and Deborah, saviors of their nation and for all who dare to act courageously at God's call. For Hannah and Ruth and all who through love and devotion witness to the faithfulness of God. For Isaiah, John the Baptist and all the prophets and all who speak the truth without counting the cost. Thanks be to God. For Mary the Virgin, the mother of our Lord and God, and all who obey God's call without question. For Andrew and John and the first disciples, and for all who forsake everything to follow Jesus. For Mary Magdalene, Salome and Mary, first witnesses of the resurrection, and for all who bear witness to Christ. Thanks, Thanks be to God. For Peter and Paul and the apostles who preach the gospel to Jew and Gentile, and for all who take the good news to the ends of the earth. For Barnabas, Silas and Timothy, and for all who bring encouragement and steadfastness, for the writers of the Gospels, and for all who bring the faith of Christ alive for each generation. Thanks be to God. For Ambrose, Augustine, Gregory, and Jerome, and for all who contend for the truth of the Gospel, for Basil, Gregory of Nazianzus, Athanasius, and all who enable us to reflect on the mystery of Christ, for Cyprian, Antony, and Ephraim, and for all who lead the church into new paths of discipleship, Thanks be to God. For Stephen, Alban, Agnes, Lucy, and the whole army of martyrs, and all who have faced death for love of Christ. For Augustine of Canterbury, and Aidan, for Boniface, and Patrick, and for all who have carried the gospel to this and other lands. For Elred, Bernard, and Cuthbert, and for all who live and teach the love of God. Thanks be to God. For Anselm and Richard Hooker, and for all who reveal to us the depth of God's wisdom. For Benedict and Francis, Hilda and Bede, and for all who deepen our common life in Christ. For Julian of Norwich, Bridget of Sweden, and Teresa of Avila, 
and for all who renew our vision of the mystery of God. Thanks be to God. For Thomas Cranmer and all who reform the Church of God, for Thomas More and all who hold firm to its continuing faith, for Gregory and Dunstan, George Herbert and John Keeble, and for all who praise God in poetry and song. Thanks be to God. For Lancelot Andrews, John Wesley and Charles Simeon, and for all who preach the word of God, for William Wilberforce and Josephine Butler, and for all who work to transform the world, for Monica and Mary Sumner, and for all who nurture faith in home and family. Thanks be to God. For the martyrs and peacemakers of our own time who shine as lights in the darkness, for all the unsung heroes and heroines of our faith whose names are known to God alone, for all those in our own lives who have revealed to us the love of God and shown to us the way of holiness. Thanks be to God. Let us rejoice and praise them with thankful hearts and glorify our God in whom they put their trust. May the infinite and glorious Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit direct our life in good works. And after our journey through this world, grant us eternal rest with the saints. Amen. Amen. I could stop there and be happy, but I've got to proceed. Um, we're looking at Hannah. By the way, my name is Rob. Good to be here. Um, we're looking at Hannah, and uh, as I was considering the Hannah story, um, I picked up something about the Pixar film uh, and uh, why they're so successful, the award-winning Pixar film series. And uh, a Pixar artist, Emma Coates, um, she studied them, and she argues that there's a, a, a deep narrative, a deep DNA structure to the narrative, and uh, inv involves six sequential sentences. And so I thought that I, we would apply that to the Hannah story. Um, so I don't want you uh, having to look at your, at the, your Bibles to follow along with me. So we're just going to give the, the, the basic outline and how the story runs because we're going to proceed through that as I, as I speak. So um, here it is. Uh, and um, well, I just did an awful lot of reading. Let's read this together, can we? That'd be great. Uh, the sequence, of course, goes once upon a time, every year, one day, because of that, because of that, until finally. All right? So here we go. Once upon a time, there was a man named Elkanah who had two wives, Hannah, who had no children, and Panina, who had lots of children. Every year, Elkanah took his family to Shiloh to worship, where Panina would taunt Hannah and rub it in that God had given Hannah no children. But Elkanah always gave an extra portion of the sacrificial meal to Hannah because he loved her so much. One day, in an act of desperation, Hannah went into the sanctuary where she wept and prayed and made a vow to God that if he would give her a child, Hannah would give him back to God. Because of that, the priest Eli told Hannah God would give her what she asked, even though Eli didn't know what Hannah was asking for. Because of that, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to Samuel. Until finally, after she had finished nursing Samuel, Hannah brought him back to Shiloh, where she dedicated Samuel and handed him over to God for life. Thanks to Pixar, thanks to Emma Coates, and thanks for the Bible, which tells marvelous stories. Hannah uh, kicks off uh, Israel's big transition to the monarchy, which takes place in the first half of Samuel. 
And of course, 1st and 2nd Samuel are primarily about the guy named Samuel, um, the great prophet, priest, and kingmaker who ushered in the glory days of King David and the kingdom of Israel. And of course, Hannah ushered in Samuel. Behind the great man Samuel was the great mom Hannah. She was a hero because she was a mother first. Uh, she wants a baby, she has a baby, and she gives her baby. Uh, I thought about the song, Mama, Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Prophets. <laughs> it's tough. Um, and we want to look closely at the story, but first I, I, I wanted to look with you at Hannah's unique contribution um, and her significance in the big picture. So uh, Hannah's story is an Annunciation story that's been amplified. The Jewish scholar Robert Alter notes that the Hannah story contains the expected uh, narrative sequences, uh, the, the motifs of the Annunciation scene. So what we have, of course, is the report of the wife's barrenness. And then we have the promise through an oracle or divine messenger or a man of God uh, of the birth of a son. And uh, of course, following that, the cohabitation, uh, the results finally in conception and birth. Uh, and Hannah replays this, this literary convention, but her story also amplifies and even distorts at some points uh, this familiar uh, Annunciation type scene. Um, and a type scene is simply a, a, a narrative, a drama that's been enacted uh, many different times in different ways. Um, so Hannah's is amplified. And, and, and so what we, what we have here is a loving husband whose love is not enough for Hannah. Um, we have a shrewish and fertile second wife who harasses Hannah. And we have a priest who, who doesn't get it. Uh, so this, this is a, 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 looks like a cast of characters from a, from a Shakespeare play, uh, like Much Ado About Nothing. You know, all those guys, Claudio and Hero and uh, Beatrice and Antonio. Um, and it's interesting, I think, that Shakespeare drew a lot of his inspiration from scripture, maybe from this play, from this uh, story. Um, so Hannah's Annunciation story, she's also representative of all of Israel. So her intensely personal story represents a sense of loss and hope of an entire community. And of course, what comes just before 1 Samuel is the book of Judges. And Judges paints a, a devastating picture of social, moral, religious collapse in Israel with its particular implications for women. But Hannah also embodies a sense of hope, a, a sense of needing uh, to be fulfilled. So she represents a community on a very positive level. And as think about saints, this is what they do. They draw us in, they bring us together, they focus our hope. And saints are a, a microcosm of a community, of a nation, of the entire world's longing for well-being, for peace, for shalom. And God's prevenient response to that deep longing in our hearts. Saints stand in that intersection to bring God's deep grace and peace to us. So, you know, we have icons of saints, but saints themselves are icons. They're symbols who represent and embody the hope of all people and of all nations, um, as Hannah does. And as I was thinking about the saints, as we study the saints, um, you know, we're not looking so much at the saints, but we're looking at what they're looking at, what they're, what they're looking for, what they're anticipating, what, what they receive in part, but they have not received in full yet, as most of the prophets in the Old Testament, looking and longing. 
Um, so we long with them. But the saints, their lives, their example, uh, also give hope and they cast light for all of us. Uh, so in that sense, I think saints are a little bit like, um, I was trying to think of an analogy, like prisms um, that absorb and then they refract the white light uh, into all its component colors. And we look not at the prism, but we look at the colors that the prism casts. So Hannah, whose, whose name means grace or favor, she casts these colors from the blue of her despondency to the brightness that emerges in, as she sings her wonderful song. Uh, and Hannah's song is a staple song that echoes the victory of Deborah and Judges, of Miriam at the Song of the Sea, uh, Song of the Sea, these glorious women singing these glorious songs. Uh, but the song also celebrates very poignantly the victory of pregnancy. So what's happening here is that the very personal is integrated into the national. This is a, a song of praise of childbirth, thanksgiving for having a child, but it's also a, a political manifesto of a nation and a king that's triumphant. Social upheaval, where the mighty are brought low and the low are brought high. So Hannah is expressing national yearnings. Her personal travail and triumph are incorporated into her community's uh, travail and triumph. So that's what she represents on a national level. But remember also she represents the, uh, uh, the infertile women in the Old Testament, uh, Genesis, Sarah, and Rachel being two of them. Um, and certainly from the vantage point of the New Testament, Hannah anticipates, of course, Mary. Mary's Magnificat at the beginning of Luke, when Mary celebrates the birth of Jesus and announces the fulfillment of all the prophecies. But I believe we hear it echoes of Hannah's song also in Zechariah's Benedictus. The Benedictus is, of course, a song about John the Baptist, who will become a prophet of the Most High to prepare the way for the Son of the Most High. The Magnificat, we sing in morning prayer. Um, I'm sorry, the Benedictus, we, uh, we say in morning prayer, the Magnificat in evening prayer. So they bookend our days for us, these two marvelous songs. So the Baron Elizabeth, um, gives birth to John the Baptist, who was a prophetic forerunner of Jesus, even as Hannah gives birth to the prophet Samuel, who ushered in and anointed David as king. Some ancient manuscripts actually attribute the Magnificat not to Mary, but to Elizabeth. Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah, very much mirror Hannah and her husband, Elkanah. Zechariah is a little obtuse, remember when he's uh, in the temple, uh, the angel comes to him and announces that he and Elizabeth are going to have a baby. He said, you're crazy, and um, doesn't believe the angel, um, so he struck dumb, struck mute. Um, Elkanah and Eli are the two leading men in Hannah's story, and they're also a wee bit clueless, as we'll see shortly. So there are many parallels uh, between Hannah and Samuel as forerunners to Elizabeth and John. And, of course, it's not a coincidence that both the Magnificat and the Benedictus Zechariah's song for John are in Luke because Luke is trying to emphasize that Jesus is born like the prophets are born. And who was the first great prophet? Samuel. So what I'm getting at here in this fairly lengthy <laughs> introduction is that there's this continuity of prophetic promise and fulfillment. 
all these people are singing the same song. It has a different significance for everyone that's singing it. Uh, and its full meaning is finally realized when Mary herself sings it. So let's get into the story. Hannah sings, but first she weeps. It's really helpful and also painful to understand Hannah's story in light of the prevalent ancient Near Eastern view that a woman's one great avenue to fulfillment in life was through the bearing and raising of sons. And the Jewish emphasis on children is marvelous. And I'm delighted that my kids, Sunday school class, because Mr. Zimmerman is sick, you guys are up here today, wonderful, welcome. There you are. <laughs> um, throughout history, Jews were called on to value children. Their entire value system is built on it. Their citadels, their schools, uh, their passion, their education, their greatest heroes are, 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 t are teachers. And the Seder service on Pesach can only begin with questions asked by a child. Uh, on the first day of the New Year, Jewish people read not about the creation of the universe, but about the birth of a child. Isaac of Sarah, Samuel to Hannah. Theirs is a supremely child-centered faith. And by, by, by association, so is ours. So it's important to realize that a, a woman's great avenue to fulfillment was the, the bearing and raising of sons. Um, for a woman, being a mother is what defined her. Even in Indonesia, where I grew up, uh, my mother was always known as Ibu Helen or Mama Helen. And uh, I wish it was Ibu Robi, but it wasn't. It was Helen who was the firstborn. So that's how she was known. So I don't know if the Hebrew culture they referred to the the mother as the mother of the, the, the first child. But I'm sure that every time Hannah hears Panina referenced as the mother of so-and-so, she winces. So think about it. All around Hannah is the scene of, of fertility, of family, a loving and devout husband, but they make her more miserable. They accentuate her emptiness. Surrounded by fullness, she is empty, literally and figuratively. And Hannah starts then on the outskirts of worship. Uh, you can imagine her in the fellowship hall. She's too depressed to eat. That double portion of food that, that her generous and loving husband has given to her from the sacrifice to God. She's listening to the bitter taunts of uh, Elkanah's other wife, Panina. Hannah just sounds much better than Panina, by the way. And so Panina's surrounded by all her kids, eating all their portions from the sacrifice. Can you imagine? I mean, just a little imagination. You can hear Panina saying something like this. Hey, Anna, you are so thin. What are you going to do with all those choice portions that you can't eat? My kids will be glad to help. They're always hungry, those kids. So this domestic torturer taunts Hannah to the point that Hannah is, some translations say, irritated. This is not just being annoyed. The Hebrew word actually means that Hannah is roaring with grief and anger. Maybe internally, but she's, she's a cauldron. Um, and Elkanah is no help. I mean, he means well, but in trying to make it all better, he just makes it worse. He says, Hannah, why are you so sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Well, no, you're not, you sweet, clueless man. <laughs> He loves Hannah, but he doesn't understand that his love cannot fulfill her deepest longing. And to Elkanah's credit, he is taking off Hannah the pressure most of the men placed on their wives to bear them sons. 
after 10 years of marriage, in fact, in the Jewish and Hebrew tradition, if a, if a wife did not bear a, a, a husband, a, a son, the husband could divorce her. So in fact, Elkanah, in light of this, was reassuring Hannah of his steadfast love. And boy, let's celebrate him too, even though he was a little bit clueless. So what's, it's not enough. Being Aunt Hannah is not enough. A double portion is not enough to fill Hannah's emptiness. A loving husband cannot do it. You can have so much in life and have nothing if the so much is not what you really, really want. So here's Panina taunting Hannah with what she desperately wants and doesn't have. And here is Elkina offering what she can have, his steadfast love, but falls so short of what she really wants. So to understand what, uh, what Hannah does next, we need to really pay attention to the text. I couldn't quite capture it here in this Pixar-related story. Um, the text says, To Hannah, Elkanah would give a double portion, for he loved her. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Both Panina and Elkanah are responding to a pre-existing condition. God did it. God created her condition. God closed her womb. So what can Hannah do? She can either resign herself, shut down her heart, or she can turn to God and open her heart to him, which is exactly what she does. She arises. She acts. And it's significant here that, that, that Hannah does not respond to either Panina, I'm getting tired of saying her word, her, her name, or Elkanah. She doesn't have a fierce conversation with them. It's, there's no point. When she does at last speak, she goes straight to God. She goes right to the source of the God who creates, I love the King James, who creates weal and woe. <laughs> what the Lord has opened, the implication is that only, what the Lord has closed, the implication is that only he can open it. I guess it works the other way too. If he opens something, he can close it. And only as he desires. And what he has closed and only he can open, only he can fill, that's when Hannah moves from the fringes of worship, from the fellowship hall, right into its heart, right to the altar. She takes it to God. She takes it to God. And what she brings to, to God is her empty womb and her embittered heart. The word bleak spirited there is literally hard spirited. This is a tough scene. You know, when we feel bitter and desperate, uh, on Sunday or uh, Saturday night, we don't typically say, I feel really angry today, I think I'll go to church. <laughs> uh, we're more likely to go to the substitute church, you know, the bar or the bottle or whatever it is that, that uh, gets you excited. And in fact, this is where, uh, exactly where the priest Eli thinks Hannah has been, in the sacramental wine. So Eli, her priest, is out of touch, he's become spiritually obtuse, He's watching Hannah's lips, but not her heart. He doesn't know her heart. And so that we move into Hannah's prayer. And the question is, how is Hannah able to, to both get her treasure and give her treasure at the same time? She prays. Her heart moves her lips. There's so much in this prayer, but I want to draw your attention to two aspects of Hannah's worship, her prayer, that reflect two different spiritual traditions in the Torah. The priestly and the prophetic, Hannah engages in both. And isn't this what saints do? They worship correctly. They follow the liturgy, but they also go off script. They pray from the heart and they break out in prophetic prayer and spontaneous song. 
But uh, the priestly first. The entire context of Hannah's story is priestly. Uh, we've got the, the, this temple at Shiloh. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant is there, the, the tent of the shrine. And so they go up to the sanctuary uh, every year to worship, offer sacrifice to God. Priests do the same thing. Uh, in the same place at the same time following a daily, monthly, and a, and, and a yearly cycle. Thank God they do. That gives us continuity. It gives us a framework. It gives us structure that we can hang on to. Um, the priests offer sacrifices. And if you see prayer in a priestly perspective, prayer is like a sacrifice. And worship is, is, is a communal act. We're all doing it together. And in fact, when Hannah's prayer is answered... She and Elkanah, they, they, they resume worship in, high, in Shiloh. She, she goes back to Shiloh, and she and her husband give Samuel along with the sacrifice of a bull. And both the bull and the child are offerings to the Lord, and the child's dedication is surely a kind of sacrifice. So there's a sacrificial element. But there's a second aspect to Hannah's prayer, uh, the prophetic. She's in really good company here. Uh, the great prayers of the patriarchs were prophetic. They were intensely personal and spontaneous. You know, you think about uh, Abraham's prayer on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah as he wrestles with God for, that, for, for the few righteous in that city. Uh, Jacob's prayer before his encounter with Esau. Oh, what a beautiful prayer that is. And it leads up to his, you know, the embrace. Oh. Um, Moses' prayer to God to forgive the Israelites after the golden calf. Hannah's prayer for a child. No two such prayers are alike. And Hannah's specific prayer is this prophetic outpouring of her heart. And it is prophetic because she gives birth to a prophet. And in this prophetic and spontaneous outpouring, I just want to point out two qualities. First, her prayer is simple and direct. There's no flowering up of language here. There's no conventional liturgical language. Um, she does not try to impress anyone. It's quiet. It's from her heart. Secondly, her, her prayer is both audacious and humble. She addresses God, O Lord of hosts. That's the first time in the Bible, uh, the first person in the Bible to pray to the Lord using that name, O Lord of hosts. So she's saying, she's praying, Master of the universe, creator of all the hosts, give me just one son. That is personal audacity. But Hannah knows her place. Three times she calls herself God's servant. That is humility, and that is complete submission. Audacity, combined with humility, reveals her profound trust in the Lord of hosts. Hannah gives to God the son she has not yet received, and that is profound trust. And know what Hannah does not do. She does not challenge or question the worth of God. Instead, she declares the worthiness of God. She reveals that God's character his goodness, his covenant faithfulness, and his greatness are her only hope, are her nation's only hope. And there's a bit of an irony here. It's Hannah's love for God, her absolute security in God's loving kindness, her security in his nature, that prompts her to make some incredible demands of God. She is banking on God to be true to his nature and not to strike her dead. John Goldengate writes, she protests the way God has treated her, and she drives God into behaving differently. God, give me a son. But Hannah is also counting on those same characteristics to release her son into God's hands. In her actions, she's mirroring God's own nature. 
She relies on God to give her a son, and then she relies on God's love to keep her son for her. So God has met Hannah. He calms her spirit. He fills her womb. Oh, good, it's only 1036. Then he fills her heart with praise. Hannah's prayer is now transfigured into song. My heart exults in the Lord. Saints know how to sing. Prayer and song are languages of the heart. There's something profoundly spiritual about song. I, singing was connected to the gift of prophecy in the Bible. If you read in 1 Chronicles 25, when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, the divided Red Sea, they didn't speak, they sang. Uh, when Moses was about to die, one of the last things he did was to teach the people a song, singing on his way to his death. When David wanted to express his innermost thoughts, of course, he sang. When Jews celebrated the temple, they sing. When Hannah finally had a child, she sang. Words are the language of the mind, but music is the language of the soul, and you put the two together, it's explosive, it's dynamite, it's love, it's glory. And note what Hannah does not sing. She doesn't sing, my heart exalts in my son Samuel. She doesn't have a sticker that says, my son is an honor acolyte in Shiloh. Thank God. <laughs> she doesn't idolize her son. Hannah exalts in the Lord. Her joy is completed in God and not in Samuel. And to love her son was to sacrifice him back to God, who loves Samuel more than she could. 1 Samuel 3.19 says that Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. And that's not all. Hannah gets more of Samuel, not less. And Samuel gets more of Hannah. There's a small, beautiful, tender detail that's just nestled into the larger story. Every year, Hannah would make a little robe for Samuel and bring it to him. And if you read the rest of the Samuel story, pay attention to that robe. From his childhood to the grave, Samuel wears the robe his mother makes for him. Starting when he was four or five and right on up till he was an adult. She makes a new one every year. So Samuel is wearing the priestly garment, God's garment for him, and he's also wearing his mother's robe. And Samuel had both, and they both influenced him profoundly right through his life. My parents are missionaries to Indonesia. Uh, they sent me to boarding school. Uh, at about the same age, Hannah sent Samuel to Shiloh. Uh, some commentaries say three years old, four, some say five, because late weaning was common in the ancient world. And, and uh, Hannah, uh, probably, her impulse was to postpone this difficult moment as long as she could. So maybe five years old when, when, when he went off. Um, same age I was. And when I tell this to people, I say, you know, my parents sent me off, and they, they say, how could they do that? I would never do that. So I emailed my mom and said, Mom, how could you do that? <laughs> well, my mom told me. She wrote a letter. Dear Rob, I have prayed the promise God gave me when newly arrived in Bali, sitting in our very simple living room, the kerosene pressure lantern roaring its light through the open windows into the immense darkness without. 
Suddenly a feeling of total inadequacy blanketed me. How could my small candle ever penetrate the oppressive spiritual darkness of this island of the gods and demons? Were we wrong in raising our children in this milieu and then sending them off to boarding schools so far away? There were no options given us then. And God spoke to my inadequacies through Isaiah 64, telling me to strengthen the stakes of my commitment, that he was in control and could do what I could not do. He also spoke to my fears about my children. In the King James Version I read then, the words leapt out at me straight from the heart of God, great shall be the peace of thy children. And through the years, over and over again, when my children were going through storms and heartaches, sometimes even being blown off course, this continued to be my prayer and firm promise for my children. Peace, the deep, quiet peace of trust in a God who can be trusted in the great promise keeper. So what could my mom say? The only thing she could say. Rob, I gave you to God. I released you into his hands. First Chronicles 29, for all things come from you, O Lord, and of your own have we given you. Ed reminded us last week of another parent who, like Hannah, gave up his son. In Genesis 22:16, God swore an oath to Abraham, because you have not withheld your son, your only son. God will now fulfill that oath by not withholding his son, his only son. And isn't that where all souls end up along with all saints who help us get there? At the altar, receiving God's son, receiving his love, receiving his care, receiving his tender mercy that we so desperately need, as Father Martin just spoke about this morning, and tender mercy that we so desperately need to give to others, receiving that son into our hearts. Well, there it is. Um, questions, thoughts, observations? Um, we have a lot of time, I think. 10.42. Yep. Penny Penina, yes. That's a really great point. It reflects her song too, right? That the Laura brought up and her raised. Right. You know, so that's yeah. So that's that's a that's great. Yes. Yeah. Lowness. Before she mm. could um, transcend or 
From a very humble, lowly place, yeah. Um, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. It, it seems like there should be one other addition to the story, the, those lines of the story. Because just like what, what Pastor was saying, in addition and, and even after that or, and in addition to that, you know, it's like she she got her son, but not only that, but um, he, he I mean there were so many things that came from that. I hope. <laughs> See me yes. for doing it. Yes, right. Yes. He he gives us more than we could possibly want or hope. Right. The desires of our heart. He plants it. He always gives us more than what we want. You know. And despite a bit about wants and needs and differentiating between the two, I think God gives us what we want and what we need both, and, and in spades, and then more. That's what He wants to give us. But we have to pay attention enough to know what's on His heart. You know. So, yeah, that's great. It, it's amazing. It's, an, it's a stunning ending when you think of, of how it started out and then you're just drawn by the ending. Oh, my goodness, the greatness of God. Yeah. 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 Thank you. I love the way you story Thanks. Could you say uh, a little bit more about the significance of the role that Hannah made for him every year? Was that something typical or was that unusual? This is a conventional story, but I think that's part of the unconventional, you know, like the Annunciation scene, which is atypical. I think that robe is, the, the, the author put that in there just to show the tenderness of that, the deep love and the continuity, you know, of, of, of his mother's love for her son. I, um, I can imagine who was writing that, just thought, or, or, or as he wrote that, whoever knew that story and put that in, had to have known that, uh, well, just how special Samuel was his mom. Um, you know, I, I think any child, um, one of the responsibilities of a parent is to address the child. You know, you don't send the child out in naked. <laughs> and you want to get the best. Um, so, and, and for the mom to make the robe. She, you know, I mean, I imagine all moms made stuff that, you know, it wasn't like, you don't go out and go to, Wal uh, to uh, Walmart and buy, I mean, it's, but the time and the care every year to do it too, you know, the connection there. So, um, our clothes, when we went to boarding school, what my mom did was put stickers on, she had to sew in our names on it, so that when we got to boarding school, we didn't lose them, because, you know, in a room with three other guys, everyone was like uh, free-for-all and wear whatever. Um, so this robe, in this context, Samuel knows it's his mom's, you know. I, maybe Ward took it to bed with him, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I think that
anyway, they wanted to send you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I really appreciate that insight. Uh, I left asking another question about this story. I keep putting in my mind um, the prodigal son. Mm. If you look at Rembrandt's painting, the mm. other son is in the background there, and and the story actually goes on and talks a little bit about that son. And so I'm wondering about the woman with the sandwiches name. What, what happened to her? You know, I sort of it's in my it's in my mind to ask that question. She drops out. I, I, any thoughts on that? I mean, she's um, I mean she's beloved too, right? And but she already has a passel of kids. It's almost as if she's had her, you know, now it's uh, Hannah's turn, but um, I don't know, any thoughts on that? Yeah, Be Be Becky, that's a great, well, a great. Bit. I, mean, kind of, it just makes, I keep thinking, what a triumphant story, but there are so many stories in the Bible about barren women or just not bearing a son. Uh. Um, and even now, you know, we have people who just can't have children. Um, this is a great, great ending to a story, but I'm sure you've kind of thought about what if God had given her a son? What if, you know, Panini, Panina, you know, was, uh, you know, was trying to, or she, you know, Hannah never had a child. And, you know. Yeah, and that's, I did think about that. I, I think this underscores also for both Panini and Hannah. <laughs> that our ultimate solace, our ultimate comfort, our ultimate fulfillments are, are found in God himself. So, you know, when Hannah prays to God and Eli says, may it be to you as you ask, she leaves at peace. And I believe that God had met her there and given her his peace, even if she had not become pregnant, she had met God and she would have found a way. That's, you know, I, you have to infer that, but, but I believe it's there. And the, the, the children, and certainly she has Samuel then, but, but then, bonus, she gets more kids. That's quite often what happens. The barren one all of a sudden becomes very fruitful, you know, so, um, and it's wonderful. Yes. <laughs> one, one more question here. We'll keep pondering that, yes. A quick announcement. Um, these are handouts for today, yes, and if you really desire to bring it home, go ahead and bring it home, but we're intending for them to live in the pew during the year, because this is the framework for our series. So uh, maybe stick it by a, uh, it a hymnal, yeah, exactly, or by the Bible, yeah, exactly. So that when we are using them, you can reference them. Thank you. Thank you.